brief summary of who I am. If you may have heard me before, I, because Corey said you name dropped me, so thank you, Corey. <laughs> I just happen to be a person who's done a lot of jobs throughout my life, and one of them happens to be as an exorcist. Now, what does this mean as a profession? Well, I should be openly up in front with you. I'm not a priest. I did not go the route of being a clergyman, though that is the traditional route of exorcism. What I did was more of an academic pursuit, which luckily through many opportunities, I've been able to be mentored by spiritual fathers. And so they've helped me on my path and allowed me to be a practicing exorcist without having to devote myself to the cloth. Because that's usually the exchange on fighting the demonic. Whenever you want to encounter spiritual warfare, you usually need spiritual armor, which is only gained through monastic practice, usually under the guidance of an abbot. But sometimes if you're inspired by the Holy Spirit of charisma, then you can be a hermit. But this is going into details that are beyond a brief introduction. So hello, I'm James. Yeah, welcome to a 50-minute podcast. My name's Corey, and today we are joined by a slew of people. We got, of course, Calvin, Seraphim, Jacob. We have Garrison back, and then we have Hank, and then we have our guest, uh, James or Daniel. And uh, he just gave his introduction. And today we're going to be asking him a Q&A series of questions relating to the profession of exorcism and the occult and spirituality. Yeah, so if we're doing a live Q&A, um, I guess I'll start unless someone else has a question. But uh, my first question would be, um, what traditions, I guess, were your spiritual fathers? Well, mainly, I take great credit in a spiritual father that is of New York residents, at least his parishes. I won't name the parish simply because he's a modest man and he doesn't like being a celebrity. But... Interestingly enough, he was a Jesuit before becoming an Orthodox priest. So he was the one who initiated me into the Western tradition before enlightening me with the more patristic traditions, starting with Basil the Great and the Cappadocians on their insights. So I have learned from the West and East. I've maintained my authority with the West only because I have adopted the Benedictine cross as my stigmata. So a stigmata is license of tradition because the West has certain brotherhoods like the Franciscans, though they're not usually exorcists, just a number of one of the brotherhoods that you would be associated with in a stigmata. Yeah, so I, I actually had a, a fan mail question uh, from a Scandinavian fellow. It seems we have a lot of Scandinavian fans. But he sent in a, a question uh, for you, which is... Um, what exactly is the nature of sigil magic and uh, to what degree is it effective and is it more effective or less effective in certain traditions than others? Sigil magic is almost identical to runes. I say that only because runes are older than what sigil magic is usually associated with, which is a form of tokenism that the Catholic Church uses. Let me elaborate because I can see some heads wondering what that means exactly. <laughs> And nevertheless, here it is. A statue has power only because of the deification of its worshipers. This does not mean, as the pagans thought, 
that there is idol worship that abuse inanimate objects. This is incorrect. No, there is a identification with a sacred space. A sacred space is usually used for the BLA movement, but it's actually a very old term, which is simply a space where worshipers gather to imbue deification aspects to a region. Usually the region being associated with an idol. That item in question, in this case, usually would be like the cross. The cross is very powerful, not only in the physical object, but within the very symbolic way of doing yourself in a cross. We know by the very church fathers that that simply can combust demons around you. I should clarify for all people to not be confused in demonology. This is a invisible warfare with invisible tools. These are not things like uh, a big live action movie where you're gonna see explosions. This is not the world that we live in, neither does magic have such a expounding approach. Magic is very, very subtle. Magic, unfortunately, is a pollution of natural causes of the universe. And as an exorcist, it's my job to study metaphysics to right those incorrections. Because at the end of the day, if someone uses magic, the universe is off of its perfection. It's a metaphysician who corrects those mathematical mistakes whenever human tampering is involved. I hope I answered your question. So this is back to kind of introduction, but how did you decide you wanted to pursue exorcism? How did that become an option in the career field? Well, this is back when I was young and naive and wanted to be a priest and wanted to be a priest meant to be a theologian and being a theologian, at least within the Western tradition, meant you had to earn all of the scout badges of great theologian work because you had the confession badge, you had the historian badge, and in the Western tradition that's only confirmed by the East, there is the exorcist badge. So I was on my way trying to pursue that path, but when I turned uh, 19, I chose to no longer try to live the life of a clergyman and be more of a lay expert. I say lay expert because I'm not just an enthusiast. I do have some authority, at least recognized by the Vatican. This does not mean I'm endorsed by the Vatican, just like <laughs> many, many, many private Catholic institutions aren't actually run by the Vatican, only sponsored. So in that same way, I am in no grandiosity. My patron would be the Pope only in a spiritual sense, like my abbot is my spiritual father. So this is in no worldly sense, but more of a guidance of what allows me to do what I do and not just being a guy on the road, just winging it. <laughs> like that, unfortunately, there's plenty of shysters who do that. And unfortunately, they're the ones who are possessed if ever they stumble upon a real demonic space. Because if you go into something thinking you know it and you had no experience, because the key part of this type of knowledge is experiential knowledge. This is not speculative knowledge. It's not theoretical knowledge. You will be studying books to see what other people in the past experienced, and then you'll confirm whether or not those statements are true, only if you survive those very similar experiences. So this is what it is to be an exorcist in a practical sense. It's not just the study of demonology, but it's the confirmation of living through a demonic encounter. Yeah. Um, if we can kind of go back to the whole magic topic. Um, I think we've kind of brought this up briefly on some other podcasts, 
um, discussing the different kinds of magic that we have in this world. Um, sometimes, like we've even had um, people like uh, Rene Guénon describe magic as um, like mathematics as a form of magic, or um, like astrology as a form. Yeah. Uh, of Augustine magic. condemns the mathematicians for this reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, in your in your opinion, or I guess in your in your knowledge, um, what are some like varied forms of magic that we have in our world? Well. Absolutely, this is a great topic precisely because you need to distinguish what is magic and what is metaphysics. Sure. Mathematics is metaphysics. This is why Augustine is wrong. Augustine admittedly didn't like studying Greek. He didn't actually like pursuing the logical conclusions of Greek, though he did it to get by. And Augustine has his own insights that I will get into if our topics go in that direction. But the main thing I want to get across is the laws of the universe is metaphysics. Anything that contradicts it, pollutes it, distorts it, that's magic. Now, if you want to know the gritty details of what magic is, well, now we're going to go into a whole different discussion <laughs> on intercultural examination because every culture has its own way of trying to get an edge in life, especially the pre-secular age where we didn't think tools could be of much help. Magic was the only way to somehow get crops at different times because you don't always have the knowledge that we have today in modernity. We live in modernity. We live of a consequence of science being put to use. Unfortunately, science is not magic. Magic is very interesting. Magic is when you decide that yourself is no longer subject to an internal struggle. What does that mean? Well, it means that having an existential crisis is the first step to magic. Having an existential crisis can lead to a crossroads of insanity and genius. And whether or not you go on either road is a determination of magic and magic alone because it is a choice of the ego. If you choose to go insane, this is dark magic. If you choose to be brilliant, this is called inspiration. What? laymen call light magic, though I call that a very poor term, knowing light metaphysics and how the divine light is truly interacted through all creation. That's a separate topic, not to be confused with magic in any such way. So you also mentioned uh, that with some of this magic, when you were describing this explosion, um, that this is an unseen realm, this is not the physical realm that we physically feel with our senses, per se. Um that being said, there are some people, I think we refer to them as Cambians, who have this ability to kind of see into the spiritual realm almost in a physical sense. Um, have you encountered any Cambians or do you have anything to say on that? Cambians are neither common nor rare. That should be a statement understood best by anyone who is a Cambian and has met a Cambian. I say that precisely because I would be out of a job if I have not encountered cadmiums, if they were not even a feasibility, there would be nothing for me to exercise. So that being said, I, I, I will say this. To meet a cadmium is to meet someone who's willing to admit the truth. To meet a cadmium is someone who's able to be a ex exhibitionist in their knowledge because a cadmium is nothing more than a occultist. Whether a learned occultist, meaning a part of a group, or a single individual who decided to get lucky on finding the right books to study, and even luckier than having the divine spark to comprehend what the secrets they had dwelled upon. All of this is what cambians are. 
Cambians are the few humans who have the divine spark to comprehend divine knowledge, but has no wisdom or guidance to utilize it. We must remember that knowledge is the pollution of evil. That's why we were the very first commandment is not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The caveat always being confused with good and evil. No, it's knowledge. Knowledge without wisdom, meaning knowledge without rules, knowledge without divine sovereignty. It's just mankind's own magic. Because magic is knowledge of the things behind the veil. What is this veil? Well, it's the thing that gives us the illusion of duality. Remember, in truth, there is only God. In truth, there is only unity, which means the whole physical world we have here is nothing more than a simulation to allow us to utilize our purpose. What is our purpose? Is so the divine notion of God can have perspective. If you are a infinite, if you are an infinite being, you experience nothing but yourself. If you take that infinity and put it into a tiny vase and put that into another tiny vase and have all these vessels called humans have experiential experiences. I know it sounds redundant, but there is a key difference. Having the ability to perceive data, anybody has, but you can be a vegetable. That's not the divine spark. The ability to comprehend what you are gathering through your sensory data, this is the purpose of you being here. This is the purpose why creation maintains itself. So God can see everything through every particular point of view at the same time. Time is irrelevant. Every person that ever lived is currently a window for God to see. It's why we have the window to the soul. It's the eyes. Our experiential collective is the God consciousness. It's why no one can ever comprehend God unless you comprehend every person who ever lived. <laughs> it really is hard. But this is why God is incomprehensible. But now we've gone off magic <laughs> and we've gone on to metaphysics by accident. My fault. No, you're fine. Um, I guess um, switching gears a little bit, uh, would you describe the most scared you've ever been in a demonic encounter? The most scared I've ever been is when I had to apprehend a murder. Pretty much for the very self-blatant reasons of my physical mortality being threatened. But if you're talking about in a fantastical way, well, then there was this one time where I was almost sacrificed. <laughs> now, I know I say that very cavalier, but in a spiritual sense, sacrifice is more than just the physical puncturing into a person's flesh. A sacrifice is convincing a person to willfully give up their own autonomy. A sacrifice is the volition of your spirit being taken upon another. This is what a sacrifice truly means. And so to answer your question at the root of what you really want to hear, that would be the time where I was most scared of a spiritual sense. But this was the time where I won't say the devil tried to trick me, but I thought of being so altruistic that I would sacrifice myself, belittling the own, my own value of a soul, which is priceless but not in the worthless sense. Priceless in that it's the jewel because it's the only thing that connects us to the ocean of God, this thing we call the spirit. Not the soul. The soul is what Freud would call the ego. The spirit is that unique value that gives your life any worth as an individual, whether or not you recognize it or a tyrant recognizes it. It is that objective fact of value. 
that is in all of us by the very fact that we are animate objects that can recollect our actions. This is what the spirit really is. It's that storage of data that allows us to be a word to the divine that is incomprehensible yet always approachable. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Um, if you would want to elaborate more into that story of sacrifice, I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> All right. So this was when I was doing a witching coven in New Jersey. But I had to remember the age, which is hard to forget. I was 16 at the time. I was a junior. No, I think a sophomore in high school. So this was during my teenage years. I was a rambunctious type of guy. <laughs> but the main thing... But, but the main thing in New Jersey was there was a witching coven where not the grandmother, but the aunt of a person was the head of the witching coven. Now, this niece happened to get in contact through Facebook, I believe, at the time. And so that's how I first was engaged with the case. I went to meet the niece who was pretty much my age, if not a year older, so probably 17. and. I was very, very curious because Denise wanted to meet me at a camping ground, the name of which escapes me at the very moment. But at the camping ground, I met the brother, the father. And I'll tell you one thing. This aunt was a matriarch in the most tyrannical sense possible, where literally they and this. I want to give a graphic warning to your listeners, because this is where demonic. No, don't laugh, because this is stuff where it's really sick where literally the intention of the aunt was to have her, I believe if it's the aunt, it makes it the brother. So her brother to have sex with his daughter as the way of initiation into the cover because she was now of age, she already had a period and they were waiting for the right moon to be Pacific, the last blood moon, which was a few years ago was exactly the time period where she would be initiated into this. So this is the pretext of what I'm getting into, where this family, all voluntarily, except for the, the niece, are into this and want this to occur, including the niece's own father. It, it really is despicable. So what happened was I portrayed myself as someone who was a warlock. A warlock is nothing more than a male witch. A witch is someone who makes pacts with the devil, in particularly for a temporary power. This is what witchcraft really is in its most basic sense. So with that, I betrayed myself as such, and I offered to marry the niece in question, but only on condition that she remains a virgin on her married debt. So in such, they wanted to test whether or not I really was a warlock, and I had to open myself up to submission. Submission to a coven is pretty much proving that one is in pact with the devil. And so I had to prove by giving myself willfully to the devil. At the end of the day, I could not go through such a blasphemous act only because if I did it with my own knowledge and my own comprehension of free will, it might actually be liable upon me, meaning I can't just lie my way through it. My very vow could make me liable to total damnation. So with that being said, I never made such a vow. Instead, I happened to do what anybody does in desperation. I broke free the last minute, of which 
to be quite frank and not to overblow my own strength because I am not in any way a boxer. I simply got out of, out of the situation with the girl in question, took a car, and, tri- and pretty much drove back to civilization away from this campsite. Unfortunately, I do not know what happened to the woman today, but of which the aunt in question is no longer in residence in New Jersey, relocated to, to whereabouts unknown at this current location. But this would be one of the examples of an exorcism. An exorcism, it should be highlighted, does not always end in some great triumph. An exorcism success is simply having the victim survive. That's the real question of a success or failure. If the person you're trying to save dies, you failed as an exorcist. This is the bottom line. There's no jokes. There's no grandiosity. This is just the bad truth of it. If she dies or he Whoever the victim may be, you failed at your job because the next decision at the end of the day is providing a new sunset for the person. That's all it is. Wow. But I hope I answered your question. I, did you want to go? I was just going to ask, how many exorcisms have you performed? Well, I'm not going to say I performed 100 only because I don't know how true or untrue that is. I never really kept the talent. But I will say there have been times where I've been very happy at the end of a case and very frustrated at the end of the case and frustrated yeah. to the point of irritation. Because, as I just said, the way you lose your case is, well, you know. Yes. What are the most common sorts of cases you get called on? Instead. It really is the number one thing for any demonic possession incest and almost irreparably because most incest if not all incest can't be conceptual rape crimes if someone has been raped they're very very open male or female regardless because of the psychological trauma they become an open target for an actual possession and remember possession is not the losing of your faculties it's just a pollution that doesn't leave your soul that's what a possession actually is. Now, you have to the extreme of a possession where it gets so corrupt that the host loses all manifestation of who they are, the host being the actual person. I, I hope I clarify. Judging by the sounds. Yeah, I was going to ask... Um in your experience, what are what, is there a common way that people sort of invite demons? I mean, you said incest. Is there sort of a trend in which people will invite? I will say you can't, and this should be highlighted for any stupid people who think they can. You can't volunteer. You can't voluntarily get possessed. Besides sacrificing yourself, that being the only way to willfully give yourself away. Besides that, you cannot get possessed through your own will. What happens in possession always is that the victim is the one that is the host, never the sadistic evil person. That's how they summon demons, by victimizing people, by literally talking people so they can be palatable for any evil spirits. 
but it's never the actual devil himself that sends the person committing these crimes. If it was, it would be a lot easier to do my job by cutting the head off a snake. Unfortunately, at least not from what I myself have experienced, has evil people been possessed. They've only been the mechanism for common possessions. They are the catalyst to people getting possessed. So is there not, okay, that's very interesting. So is there not a trend of people falling into some mistake or or sin or something that that would invite these forces unintentionally into their lives? Heresy does not gain into demonic possession. There is a reason why when Jesus cast away the legions and, and all the other episodes of demonic possession in the New Testament, none of them were blasphemers. All of them were just civilians, every single one. You can check the New Testament to see if I'm wrong. And if I am, this will be the first time after reading it over 30 times that's been pointed out to me. So I can say quite confidently, if not slightly smugly, that yes, <laughs> every single time, no evil person is possessed. A sorcerer is not possessed. They are commanded by Leviticus and Deuteronomy to be murdered because they endanger the community of possession. They endanger the community of pollution. It's why Yom Kippur, the communal sanctification of the nation, happens every year just in case someone is polluting the community. It's not polluting your own soul. Remember, the books in question of any authority talk of humanity as a collective group, meaning we are very reactionary to what we do to each other. And God's intervention is usually to stop some other group for this group. It's always humans that need to be intervented upon, not full. Yeah, I think that's very, very interesting. Um... So you're kind of always seeing the possessed as a victim of sorts, not as someone who invited things onto them, but someone who is a victim of someone else. Is there a way in which these victims are chosen? Is there a way in which they fall into like wrong company? They are chosen by the arbitrary covens that target them. And by covens in this particular instance, I don't mean solely witches. I mean any occulted group that would target someone for sacrifice or better yet for possession. Because most people who are possessed are not targeted for sacrifice. What I was doing, something very uncommon, having a volition volunteer themselves. To be honest, I'm like that cherry that everyone longs for at the top of a Sunday cake. Having a victim volunteer themselves is the ultimate form of getting someone possessed. Because that invites a archdemon, a prince of hell into someone. It's the only way to invite such a being into the world. You can't simply target an innocent little child and then expect an archdemon to take over their body, no matter how grandiose many people have tried to do such. Yeah, Daniel, was, would this, as an example, be the sort of Sumerian practice of having a temple virgin uh, sleep with a man who was a king and incarnate of a spirit that supposedly created the Nephilim? Yes and no. I know what you're talking about precisely, and that was a common practice, but uh -huh. I want to clarify on the nature of Nephilim. Uh -huh. The very nature of the Nephilim are pre-civilization. What you are speaking of in only slight correction would be that the king would claim blood of Nephilim royalty, which many of the Mediterranean area made such a claim, right. which gave them divine right. 
their divine right being that they were not simply human, but they were angelic humans. Yeah. That's being the divine right of all kings. It's why divine right makes any sense. No person is born luckily chosen by God unless they're a prophet. And, it, and you can ask Jonah, that's an unlucky day, not a lucky day. <laughs> being a prophet is not desirable. Being a prophet, according to Amos and Jeremiah, is like having your bones on fire. It's not comfortable. But when it comes to divine right, this is hereditary. It's me saying somewhere, somewhere, Hercules was my great-grandfather. Hercules being one of the archetypes of the Nephilim in question. But the Nephilim, as the scripture said, was simply the heroes of renown. We just know them by their more famous names than by their nature. So kind of going along those lines, um, I'm trying to figure out how I should frame this question, but thinking of the Watchers, the Egregore, um, there's allegedly, um, or at least as I've read up on, um, a lot of saints, um, like St. Patrick, for instance, were responsible for expelling these Watchers from uh, these nations. Um, so St. Patrick in the Book of Kells is probably the most famous example I can think of. But um, of these different watchers that have been expelled over time, is there like an approximate number that are still left in the world that are still kind of wreaking havoc or wandering around? Well, the total number for Armageddon is 120. So 120 must remain okay. upon the earth for there to be an evil army to fight. That's what the book of Revelations makes very clear. Outside that, if you look at the first book of Enoch and the first book of Enoch alone, which is the only real authority when it comes to demonology from the second temple era, mm -hmm. then what we're dealing with is a problem of the chicken and the egg. What came first? <laughs> yeah. Did the angels rebel or did God allow evil to exist? This is the eternal question that the Book of Jubilees tries to answer by saying evil came first through the archetype of Satan. It doesn't use the word Satan, it uses a different name that I can't pronounce and don't want to try to pronounce. But nevertheless, the Book of Jubilees has the first attempt of saying evil came first. The Book of Enoch counters with no, first came the rebellion, then evil. Now, it really is a question of whether or not angels have free will. Before I answer, what is the general opinion of each one of you? Do angels have free will? We'll go from left to right to see what the answer is. I would, I would say they don't really fall into the dichotomy of free will versus non-free will, but in an immediate sense, no. Okay, I would argue that they no longer have free will, but at one point they did have free will. You went curious, sir. All right. I was brought up fundamentalist Baptist, so I would be more on the line of they don't have free will. Okay. Protestants don't believe angels free will. Got it. <laughs> I, don't speak, I don't speak for all Protestants. I'm sorry. So go on. I haven't ever given much thought to this particular question, but um, uh, I, I'm sort of in favor of what Jacob said, that maybe they used to have free will, but they don't anymore, that they're, uh, they're sort of non-temporal beings so that whatever decision they made was made eternally but that's just off the cuff. You have a combination of Jacob's plan and also Corey. I know Corey's logic for why they have semi-free will is once they make a choice, it's, it's forever made. Correct, Corey? 
No, I'm not. I'm not actually not meaning it in a Thomistic sense. I actually mean it in a more traditional Jew, Jewish sense. But uh, oh, well, look at you going for the rabbi. Right. <laughs> but um, I I, I want to let other people speak. I don't want to talk too much on this actually. Well, I don't have anything particularly enlightening to say about this. I I think that this is something I've considered a little bit myself, which is. There does seem to be the understanding that some angels did fall, which implies some sense of free will. However, it does seem that angels do um, not seem, in our in our understanding, seem to be perfectly in line to the will of God in almost a um, commanded way in which they can't really break free. So there seems to be some something there that I don't fully understand. I haven't really bothered to research it. Um, so I, I can't really answer the question very well. My initial reaction would be yes, just because of the fact that there have been fallen angels. Now, I'm not sure if, Jacob, it seemed like you were thinking after they had fallen, they lost the ability to have free will. Is that what you were getting at, kind of? I I won't really take up a ton of talk time, but more or less, I'd argue that they've, in a sense, kind of already experienced their final judgment. the, I do want to say I think free will is kind of one of those words like Gnosticism that doesn't really mean anything because it means so many things. So, I would agree. Um, and, and even I would argue what, that great. What most continue. people think by free will, I don't think actually exists even for humans. Um, okay. So I'll just say that I'm I'm pretty Gregory Onisa with this sort of thing, which is to say that there is merely an ultimate good that we are all led to inevitably, and we're sort of making a platonic error of knowledge, and therefore we deviate from that. Um, and within the era, that's where we get an idea of free will. And angels aren't even on that level of operation that humans are. But in either case, that's all I want to say for now. Very accurate. So far, quoting the church father has been the best thing. Now, to answer everyone's particulations, because it is interesting what you guys are saying. But there's one gap, and that's the gap of the Western culture. And that is, it doesn't account for gym. Jinn are from the Quranic and the Islamic traditions. Now, to give a very, very brief and generic summary of what jinn are, they are humans, but instead of being made of clay, they are made of fire. They are the only other free will counterparts excluding God's totality. And you're right, Corey, in the sense that we're talking about free will, most objects have no such thing because most things are ruled by the law of causation. Once something interacts, you're only going to interact one certain way. That's why God's perfection is linear. There's not a multiverse. I should very much clarify to anyone who's thinking that theory. The multiverse only exists if God was fallible. This can only be the case because why would we go through the torment of suffering if we had options of great plenty? There's no more justification. There's no logical justification except this is the best of all worlds. Does that mean this is the best God can do? No. This is the best God wanted to do, and so we're stuck with it. That's how it is to be the subject of a king's win. A true sovereign does whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants, and you can only hope that you survive it. The graciousness of God is being joined in sovereignty. So to answer the question on angels and free will, angels are the only incorporeal beings. The key part here is that they're incorporeal, though they have 
the personhood of an image. To make it in layman's terms, they shapeshift. It's why a lot of the biblical characters mistake angels for regular people. Nevertheless, they are best analyzed as anatomatrons, no more than cyborgs, because of their perfection to that sovereign, that the sovereign mandates its will above their will, even if there is no will to begin with. All actions done by angels are actions done on behalf of God. That's why in the book of Job, Hasetan, though entitled an adversary, is nothing more than a bureaucrat for God. He allows there to be a prosecutor for any judgments to be held in his divine court. What court of appeals has a lack of a prosecutor? So how can God, being the judge of the world, have such a lack in his own heavenly court? The reason why we have, quote unquote, fallen angels, it's not because they chose to fall, but because God did not corrupt the angel. God, instead, allowed there to be a second species of volition. Volition being the key word here. The first species of volition is the jinn, who is Iblis, which is the personal name of Hasetan. Iblis was the one to use volition against God's sovereignty. That was the first contradiction in the world, or at least the illusion of contradiction, because nothing truly contradicts an all-powerful, all-determinate being. But nevertheless, this was the first contrast. And that contrast only manifests itself in the creation process of the second species of volition, humans. Why is it that Iblis couldn't bow to man? Because it would admit that jinn are equal to men. You cannot have two beings subservient to one Lord if one of them presumes the place of the Lord, i.e. Satan thinking himself to be the most high. You can't omit yourself any peers in that group if you want to be the most high. This is what led to the rebellion that we most commonly associate with angels, but more accurately, the rebellion of the jinn. The jinn are the ones that fought against God's host. After all, if God is the God of armies, he's not going to have a bunch of rebels. He's not going to have a bunch of people retreating from the battle line. God's perfect. God is fully sovereign. So there must be an enemy equipped to God, not equal to God, but equipped. What does equipped mean? Of volition, of able to resist the ultimate determination of God's will, which is indeterminable, because only his will is true. Only his desires are made manifest. I say his, not in any masculine sense, but only for the power of language to portray a subject, and the subject being the divinity itself, the deity. So what I'm trying to get across to everyone here is this, that the angelic chord is nothing more than a, a vassal of non-physical robots, anatomatrons, while the actual demonic forces of the world are simply the jinn, and their descendants, who would be called Nephilim. When jinn and man meet, this is the corruption of the world. Now, if the jinn had their own volition, would they be able to freely choose not to rebel? And if so, did any of them do that? Yes. Beautifully asked and beautifully true, which allows exorcism to not always mean in the destruction of the jinn. I should mention here that the notion of sending demons back to hell is a Hollywood notion that was only misinterpreted by the Western fathers. 
the actual process of demon combat, at least according to St. Basil the Great, is the actual extermination of these beings, the destruction of a gym, back then called demons. This is what exorcism started out with. But later on, through Islamic mystics called Sufis, we learned that the jinn themselves can become saints, which is truly mind-blowing to think a demon can earn sainthood. Because to all Western notion, the jinn is the equivalent of a demon. In, all, in every practical sense, especially as an exorcist, jinn are just the more practical, if not technical, term for what I do. I'm not saying that I'm a jinn hunter, though Muslims do have their equivalents. And so they are called jinn hunters. But what we call jinn hunters are better known to us in the West are exorcists. They are the same job, just with different terminology because of cultural norms. Yeah, there's um, a, um, I, know, I know a Muslim fellow who's um, uh, kind of an expert on, on kind of medieval Islam, who's a, uh, a mystic Sufi and 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 he and I discuss uh, discuss jinn briefly, and and his interpretation of them um, was that they were more just interdimensional beings, some being of good nature, some being of bad nature, some being mutual well. that sort of go between this world and and the next. And he's he's a very mystic, uh, you know, Muslim, uh, but also very well versed in in sort of traditional Muslim. Uh, a theology. So, uh, I think Daniel knows this person. Yeah, I think you do know who I'm talking about, although I won't name him. Most likely, because I, I won't name him either, but if, 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 it's, if he's French, then he's French. He's a very French. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah we're talking about the same We're French. all thinking of the yes. same person. <laughs> yeah. So, I wonder what your well, take was on that interpretation. Well, in addition to that question, let me, let me also add on. In so far, the jinn are, are fire uh, elementally. Do you also say with Rudolf Steiner, talk, have, have an explanation for water and earth spirits as well, and to what degree are there agencies oh, yes. uh, within that? that I'll same touch bag. upon after. Okay. Because that's a whole giant subfield. It's a beautiful right, like gnomes. Right, yeah, okay. Yes. But first, to answer the Sufi approach, and my friend in mutuality is correct, only because the jinn are people. The jinn are people in the same sense that we have evil people and good people. How Jinn we lives have matter. <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> Not, I can't say it with enthusiasm because half of the time I'm killing them. But nevertheless, good <laughs> lives matter. Yes. But the main topic in question is this. Are jinn in any way physical? Answer, yes. Do jinn have any obligations upon the material world? Answer, yes. Are jinn in competition with the human race? Answer, maybe really dependent on what faction and kingdom you are talking about. And I say kingdom only to use the Western term for clans because they personally refer to themselves upon a clan of such because they also reproduce in their own manner. In a manner similar to the flesh, but with the peculiarities of fire. So all of this is something you have to keep in mind with the jinn, that they are simply almost like superhumans, but not in a comic book sense, more in like the church fathers were referring to in a invisible sense. The people behind the veil that can tap you on the soldier, those are the jinn. They are the ones that you can touch but cannot see. They are the ones that you can talk to but can't hear. 
these are the gyms. So back last year, we did a podcast on uh, shadow people. Do you remember that, Corey? Would right. would shadow people, would this be the same thing or are shadow people something no. different? Okay. Well, what are shadow people, people? Shadow people, and to go into Corey's segue, are a mistaken for the wind people. The wind people are the fairy folks. The okay. fairies are a whole species of interdimensional beings, usually associated with wind only because of their long longevity and also because they're the only ones of the interdimensional beings that are stuck in this planet. What does that mean? There is a parallel dimension to this world called the fairy world. They are able to go in and out of it but that does not mean it extends to the cosmos like our physical world does. It is not the ethereal is world. Is that the astral which realm? Which is why a lot of people think it. No, it isn't. A lot of people think it is, but it isn't. The fairy world is mistakenly not the astral world. The fairy world is, how can I put it? There was a show on BMCC that depicted something like it, but not perfectly. It, it was... I, I don't remember the title, but the depiction in question was it was the world behind the mirrors. And it, and there was a giant maze, like almost one of those Van Gogh paintings with, where the steps go everywhere all at once. This is in representation, the closest thing to what the fairy world is. It is a physical world without the laws of physics. It's, it's fascinating because if you ever find yourself trapped in there, the first thing you'll notice is there's no air. There's absolutely no air whatsoever, despite these beings being of air. It truly is interesting. Have you been in there or do you just know people who have been That's in it or read ask. about it? I've been in it once and I had to hold my breath just to get out. So I lasted a whole 14 seconds. How did you end and up in there? I went through the right mirror. So this this is very much David Bowie's um, Labyrinth, sort of. Yeah. The, the Goblin yes. King. <laughs> Yeah. Good analogy. <laughs> very good analogy, except not as lifeless. Uh -huh. <laughs> very, very much creaming and crawling with civilization. I would best depict pre-medieval. It really is a fascinating culture that they choose to come in here to mess with the affairs of mortal men, especially in modernity, because they're the main reason why plane crashes and why there's malfunction on trucks. They're the ones doing it. Have you met the shadow people, the fairy people? Have you met them? Ever? Oh, yes. I've actually been in communication with one of, and I hate to use this term because it's usually associated with the indigenous, but in one of their, uh, uh, what do you call the Native American uh, locations? Um, Indian reserves or? Reservations. No the fairy folk have reservations primarily because the dominions of nature have been laid waste by modernity. So Humans have given form, them reservations? Well, yes, not directly like we've done with the indigenous of the Native Americans, sure. but in, indirectly by simply not allowing them to be able to live. Like, genuinely, the closer global warming gets, the entire fairy folk won't be able to survive within this world. It's a weird thing to think that our our problems can cause the extinction of a whole species of uh, sentient beings, but it can, o only if they choose not to remain in their realm. To be honest, there is no sun in their realm. That's not even a possible threat for them. 
In this world, unfortunately, global warming could destroy everything maintainable of even pertaining to come over. So that's the thing about the fairy folk. So, so what is the what is the contact you had with them? What 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 was that like? Well, the fairy folk were interesting because it it was in upstate New York where I first met my encounter there. In upstate New York, there was a legal dispute over the owning of a hotel. This hotel was for a long time not even on the map on purpose, but because it was accounted by the real estate agents, they actually wanted to make some legal form, making it into a real on the records place. So my job there was pretty much to prevent this from happening. And how I prevented it was I became a, uh, what do you call that? CEO? Oh, I know, a mediator. I went to the people who were supposed to be the board of directors who were in reality the fairy folk that were living there. What was going on was there was a retail developer with his lawyer who wants to evict all of the residents because this building shouldn't even exist. So what I did as the mitigator was simply I allowed them to gain citizenship of New York State in an expediated process. So the clever idea I had was simply to give everyone a driver's license. Something a lot harder to do than one may first think, mainly because they had no birth records. How do you exactly get driver's license for people without Social Security? Luckily, through a very shady DMV. (laughs) 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 And so that was enough to maintain their ownership. And now they have legal residence in that compartment because of these official driving license, but skipping all actual forms of formality in getting these driving licenses. Really, it's not, they can't even drive with them. They're just New York State IDs, but you get them at the same place as, as the DMV. Yeah. I think the shadow people are a subtype of the fairy. Okay, so the, so the fairy people got the driver's license. Do they yeah. look like normal? The shadow people are a derogatory term for dark elves, which are just a even Are worse way of saying evil That's what fairy. I was going to ask. The DMT elves. What kind, where do they fit no. into all of this? Or, or rather, are the DMT elves no, just of the fairy people subset? No. The DMT elves are actually, and this may shock you, gnomes. Yeah. That, I, know, I know. It's very weird to, to hear that, but gnomes right, that's what, are okay, the yeah. But I thought that, that, that so the gnomes are the earth spirits. The fairy or the air spirits. Yes. Exactly. Okay. The, this this matches Correct. up with what Rudolf Steiner yes. says. Have so. we defined the water spirits yet? Well, I'm happy Rudolf got it right. But, all right. So, what's the current question? So I stay on top. That's what I need to know. What's the question, Garrison? Are gin the same as salamanders? Not even remote. One, even the very animal species of salamander means they're cold-blooded. They would be completely destroyed economically within the very essence of are you Are you referring to the occult idea that the salamander are the fire spirits? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. More in Western occultism. Right. Oh, Uh, Good, because what I was hearing (laughs) and picturing was very, very weird. All right, so... Quickly brief me on salamander, and then I can actually relate it to something that I've experienced. 
I, well, Western Western occultists and alchemists will often refer to fire spirits um, as salamanders. Uh, I usually refer to them as phoenixes, fire spirits. But uh, I, I, I mean, I, I imagine with each of these spheres, there are different types of beings. I imagine the jinn aren't the only fire spirits. Oh no! Surprisingly, the jinn are not categorized as fire spirits. Oh, they're not. Okay, not. They are in the same category as humans, the few beings of volition, very few beings of volition. Everything else is of an animal state of consciousness. That does not mean that you should be cruel to animals because they don't have free will, just like you should be cruel to fairy folk because they technically don't have free will in our sense. The only other beings besides God and humans that have free will are jinn. And it's for this specific reason they're not actually fire types. What are fire types are phoenixes and other beings of self-destruction, usually better categorized as ethereal. Ethereal in the actual sense. So we were we were talking a second ago about how the fairies have their own realm. Um, I once heard someone discuss to me that there were six kingdoms or six realms um how what what's well, your take on this how many realms i guess are there and how the intrazel connects to the worlds which is an interesting theory but not in truth it intrazel is an interesting concept only because it was a mistaken action of odin that it came about odin i should mention is quite a person of great charisma in fact Odin is one of the few beings that could be determined as a watcher in the Enoch sense. I like, was under the impression that Odin was a watcher. Well, then you are correct about that impression, my friend, because there are very, very few watchers. And now the general rule is this. If it is a pagan deity, then it's possibly a watcher. If it's a watcher, it has to be a pagan deity. That's the general rule. Now, to go in about this, because Odin is probably the archetype of what watchers do today, and that is they are trapped. They are in confinement, usually by a person of great strength, not physical, but spiritual strength to be their vessel. There are many, many watchers that are not doing havoc because we've had saints who managed to contain them within their physical bodies. This is the best way to deal with watchers. Because no man, no matter how great of an exorcist they claim to be, can take on a watcher. In fact, when St. Patrick took on the fairy queen, he could only contain her until his death. And by the rites of final communion, was able to be vanquished from this fear. It's the only reason why she's not around today. It's because he contained her all the way to the final breath. That's the only way to really make a watcher go to the other side of the veil and instead of you forcing it. Because for other spirits and beings, you can force usually by your authority by God. But these beings are almost with the mark of Cain, protected by that same authority, and so cannot be expelled. All you can do is contain them. Going back a little, you mentioned how Odin was a person of great charisma. I forget your exact language there. But does that mean someone like like Oprah, who's really good with people, or is there another term there? No, I mean charisma in the sense of the prophets and the Greek poets, like Homer, 
where inspiration caused their divinity for a moment. Except Odin was at no point not a semi-divine being. He wasn't a person possessed. He was always within his own form. That's why he is a watcher. He's able to predate the existence of humans. Would that be similar to maybe Krishna? Krishna, yes. Here's the thing about Krishna. I met someone who was possessed by Krishna. Very interesting, actually, story. It's one of the few times someone of ancient legacy comes to possess a person. I won't get too many details on the person's identity. Of course, sure. Because they may actually hear this someday, and I respect confidentiality. But nevertheless, this person had a aura about them that you can clearly tell why she was attracted to this vessel. And I say Krishna as a she simply because that's how I'm using my grammar today. Krishna could be boy or girl, depending on the manifestation of that avatar, because their tradition likes to say the manifestation of great powers, which is what in general, all of these beings are great powers. They give themselves a form so they can make a role. We should keep in mind that all the watchers exist because they're mandated to maintain existence. When the watchers are destroyed, this age is destroyed. This is the only way we're going to get to a new Jerusalem. When their deaths occur, then all the creation will be like a etch-a-sketch in the allegorical sense, not a literal sense, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that is the whole point of why they still exist. They're just maintaining creation until the final day. Similar how, according to St. Simeon, the new theologian, Armageddon will happen when the final soul of a saint is born because there's no more to wait upon. So there's a clock that's happening that only God knows about. And we're at the point where we're at the brim, but the end of the world doesn't happen until we go over the cup. That's also very much like the Kabbalistic like Sea of Guf, I think, where you have this outpouring of souls. And, so. and they, they say yeah. that the end of the world will occur when the last soul has poured out. Well, this is also a common theory among Sufis as well. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much the whole view of the mystics is this. Existence maintains itself because it's yet to complete itself. This is the only way the mystics understand the physical. This has nothing to imply upon the creator and his independent eternity. For the physical realm, we have a due date because everything must happen. And if everything must happen, there must be a limit to what can happen. So what we're just going through is the motions of events happening until every event that could ever happen has played itself out. That's why only God can know the ending, because only God would know the totality of all actions. Can can I completely change pace here and ask you a question from the business side of this? <laughs> um, do you charge for exorcisms? And if so, how on earth do you come up with what to charge? I charge upon tokens, and those tokens are usually done to humans. For non-human species, I work pro bono only because of what we've done to their entire species. I can't even say race, it's species. Us as humans with modernity and colonialism have really fucked up all the non-human species of this world. So with that being said, I work pro bono for them. 
For individuals, I will accept cash, but usually I prefer to accept tokens because after a successful exorcism, a item of power is left behind as a residue. And I like to collect those. So that not just polluting space. And by space, I mean in the actual sense of physical space. Like if this was a cursed object, if I allowed it to exist, it would destroy this entire room only in that it would make a magnet for demons to manifest. What's this the craziest I'm... What's the craziest token or object that you've gotten from one of these? Oh, let me see if I still have it here. Luckily, keep all of them in this one black box. I'm only going to show one because I got quite a few. They're okay. not all rings, but the one I'm going to show you is a ring. Because this one is very, this is probably the most powerful cursed item I have. Let, that let ring? Me, yeah, this ring. Take close study detail of whatever quality this is coming through as. Okay. This ring. This ring has a very long story, but the reason why it has power, it has the lives of 30 people in it. This is why it is a curse object. This is without a doubt the most powerful thing I keep within my living quarters. Other objects are too big to store into a small box. Is it, is it not going to attract spirits? Well, the reason why I keep it in this box is to alter its powers. It's literally, I guess the, sci the, the science fiction equivalent would be like a force field. Oh, okay. But, but really, it's a protection charm that I use. It's the only reason why all of this doesn't bring death upon the building I live on. It really is. When you open it, does it cause problems? Well, if it did cause problems, I would need to renew the ritual of sealing. So I would notice. What what type of what type of sealant do you use? I've heard people say holy oil is the sealant, and water is chrism. What what exactly do you use? Well, the holy oil can only be gained by a ordained bishop of the Orthodox Church. The Catholic Church has lost okay. such authority. And those are usually done upon objects of flesh, like let's say a skull. That could be done to protect it and sanctify it. But if you're talking about metal objects, then the best thing to do is holy water, usually gained upon epiphany. Meaning the one holiday of the year where they produce holy water, that's the only holy water that works. It's it genuinely is. I tried normal holy water, it's literally just water. Doesn't help you in any way whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there a difference between denominations like Catholic, I've, Orthodox? I've heard that uh, from some vary? people that Orthodox holy water works better than Orthodox, Catholic. yes, yeah. but again, only on the holiday for producing holy water. Has to be theophany, gotcha. Yeah. Number two, for denominations, if, if denomination means Christian sects, yes, they are bullshit. <laughs> if denomination means other religions and they're equivalent to holy water, well, actually, yes, there are Islamic equivalents and there are Jewish equivalents. Not okay. in the form of water, surprisingly, but there are equivalents. Are there any Eastern equivalents? Ah, that's a beautiful question. The Upanishads theorize. I've yet to see one that works, but the Upanishads theorize that if you can disassociate the physical incorporation of a being, then that would be the equivalent of sprinkling holy water on them. There are a lot more. Yes. Sorry. Seraphim had a question in a second, but I was just wondering, 
is <laughs> would you be willing to go in a little bit? I don't want to push you at all. Detail into the story behind that ring. Unfortunately, that would take up more time than I really want to go into. Also, okay, it's all right. Just because all right. it's That's not a happy problem. story, and I think okay. I already told a kind of a plethora of very unhappy stories. But this is the topic you you chose to invite me on demonology, correct? <laughs> so we have to have a threshold of how much unpleasantness I can tolerate. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Did you want to? go or did anyone else yeah this is going to pivot a little bit but it's something that's been on my mind for a while um so i've known a few people a few clergymen who have either been directly involved or know people directly involved in in certain exorcisms um but one story that sticks to me and i'm hearing this about i think i'm hearing it third hand although i know the person personally who who told it secondhand um and and i and i knowing the people involved i i I take it to be true uh but it's 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 been something on my mind for a while and i want to see what your take it is on it um there was an exorcism in greece between um a few orthodox clergymen um and a certain person with a devil uh, or demon in them um and um during this exorcism, one of them was a bishop, an Orthodox bishop. I don't know if I'm supposed to be telling a story, to be honest, but I will. Um, during this exorcism, the demon made it clear to the bishop that he would be taken by the water. Um, essentially, I think maybe even made it as clear that you you will be drowned within the next few days. Um, the bishop ignored it, and within a few days, he was out on a swim which he does regularly and was immediately drowned. Um, I wonder how something like that happens. Uh, how So the, the bishop was involved with an exorcism, was exorcism of someone else. Uh, I think a supposedly um, successful exorcism. How does something like that, how does a demon make a prediction like that? And then also how does someone who seems uninvolved with the whole thing uh, succumb to something like that. It just it, it it really strikes me. I was wondering, like, does the bishop have some sin that he was involved in? Was he involved with the demons, or was he weak? I, I'm trying to understand how that kind of goes into someone else. This makes me think of the episode in the Lesser Key of Solomon, where the farmer and his son, um, the demon tells Solomon that the farmer will be dead within three days. Um, but that's just a side note. Always. So, if you would indulge me in analyzing the details, let me begin. Interesting. So, here's the thing. The bishop, unfortunately, was not an unrelated bystander. In fact, he was making a proclamation of faith by his denial in associating the demon's threat. Number one. Number two. We have to remember the motives of God and God's desire to intervene in the world. Why is our God, the king of the universe, the type of God who will let 400 years of slavery happen to to lift a finger for the Israelites? Why is it now that in our modern world, there's 400 years of black oppression and only this year there's actual reparations talks and real change happening because of the inspiration of the hearts by God? This is the type of God we deal with. And when we say Godspeed, 
people mean fast, but what God means is pretty slow and deliberate. I say all this in summary because God's whole motive of allowing evil, especially prolonged evil to exist, is to show the strength of God, to show the miracles of God in such a astounding way that you can't deny it. So the reason why the words of the demon applied was just to show the strength of God by not only making a demon's word true, but then vanquishing that so-called authoritative demon. This is the 3D chess that goes on in the spiritual world warfare that we call exorcism. Demons have power, just like witches have power, to serve the purpose of defeating. If it wasn't for that purpose, they would be charlatans. Their powers would not be made manifest. The key archetypal example is the story of the witch and the prophecy of the death of King Saul. If you know your Bibles, this should be a very familiar story. But the detail usually overlooked was the witch's own shock when the spirit of Samuel came, not realizing that it would work. The one time the witch's power worked, according to the context of the story, was when it was to fulfill the purpose of God. So whenever magic and demons have sway, it's to fulfill a greater purpose. Whenever they don't, they are to be killed nonetheless because that's God's law, to prevent any charlatan into becoming a real threat as a sorcerer. But this is the main distinction. Powers of demonic magical sort only occur by God's will, and that will is almost guaranteed in the eventual vanquishing of that temporary evil. This is why evil exists in a magical sense. This does not explain why there's moral evil in the world. That's a problem of human volition and our own brutality and cruelty as creative beings being used to pollute the world instead of sanctify the world. But that's moral corruption. I'm talking about magical corruption. Magical corruption only exists because of God's desire to redeem the world. You can't redeem a world that's not polluted. You, you can't clean a world that's not dirty. So that's why evil exists in a magical sense. So it can be vanquished to show both God's authority. After all, a sovereign that doesn't manifest his authority is not much of a sovereign. Okay, yeah, thank you. That's very interesting that Gives me a lot to think about. Um, I have I have one last question for you. Um, pretty random, but I'm 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 just curious. Have you ever seen uh, or are familiar with the Russian Orthodox movie, which is pretty popular amongst a lot of Orthodox, called Ostrov, about a monk in Russia? Yes, I, I actually saw it with Corey. Oh, okay, okay. You saw it today. I had a yeah. my my old spiritual father who used to be involved. I think I think if I'm correct, someone involved in exorcisms in the past. He had told me that he thought that the exorcism scene towards the end of the movie was the most accurate depiction of exorcism in cinema that he had seen. I wonder if someone experienced like yourself, what you think? It is to a point because it showed beautifully self exorcism, which is what we're all mandated to do if we are to be truly mature in Christ. I say mature in Christ to use the terminology of St. Simeon, the new theologian, who has the most extensive practical writing on spiritual warfare. If any of you don't know his books, I've given Corey links to previous recommendations. So 
If your fans want to ask, keep emailing Corey and bother him about it. <laughs> but the main <laughs> thing is this, that when it comes, all right, so I want, I want to really approach this question in an honest way. So I really want to actually take a moment to think about this. Hmm. Rephrase the question one last time so I really know what I'm trying to hone in on. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, my 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 old spiritual father who I think was the exorcist scene from the movie, right? Yeah, he mentions the scene the movie you and, to analyze. Yeah, he he either was directly involved himself or he he was familiar with people involved with exorcisms. He said the scene towards the end of the movie with the girl and the monk, he thought was the most accurate portrayal of an exorcism that he had seen in cinema. Um, and I wanted to see what what your your take on that might be. Now, the reason why it's accurate is for this reason. The monk throughout the entire plot of the movie was pursuing one goal, dispassion. Dispassion in every sense to the point where there was a comical scene where the mat for the abbot was burnt. Yes. <laughs> if you remember, Gordon. this was the main motif throughout the entire film. And was the climax was the girl because now it was taking his dispassion and spreading it like the uncreated light of the Lord, which is simply like a candle on a hill does shine forth upon all that is within this domain. So whenever the monk was doing spiritual battle, his influence upon himself could leak upon the girl. This is what is actually manifest beautifully by the story of Elijah and the person who died, but then he laid upon her, uh, laid upon him, my small correction, laid upon the boy, which gave life to the boy. These actions of self-purification in proximity to a person is the most common way, of, especially among the Orthodox tradition, of doing exorcism. Self-cleansing within the same room of a demonic host meaning a person under a demonic sway, is usually the best way to invite the Holy Spirit into that location. Because the only time that monk knows how to access the Holy Spirit is in seclusion. So to do acts of seclusion with another person there is to bring the Holy Spirit with company. And that's how he cleansed the girl. At least by the betrayal of the movie, that's how I interpret it, because that's what actually happens in a metaphysical sense when he did those actions upon her. Those actions were him doing oblations and doing penitence. And those penitence indirectly by gaining the attention of God also managed to gain the attention upon the girl. And this is what cleansed him. He got God's attention and that's what cleansed him. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Would you want to share a story of where you were, where you had sort of a triumphant experience in an exorcism, a happy one? Oh, okay. Well, actually, that's a, that's a good way to close off a, a good ending. <laughs> well, I will say my best time as an exorcist was when I was training uh, seminarians because I was invited to uh, St. Flas uh, Seminary, upstate New York. If any of you've heard of it, it's an Orthodox Associated. They had a collection of very old books on de uh, demonology and as an instructor, which was my formal title as a guest of their place. 
as an instructor, I was invited to give my own opinion on it because they just recreated, meaning they translated into English and made it very, very prestigious and understandable for anyone to read. I went through it, and what gave me a great opportunity was to see the influence on the subconscious whenever occult knowledge happens. So the reason why this is a happy ending is because, one, I didn't have to destroy the object of corruption. Sorry again, Corey, about the skulls. <laughs> Number two, the seminarians actually learned some practical theology, which is very rare because anyone who knows theology knows it's mostly speculative. So practical theology is when metaphysics gets up in your face and you can't deny magic nor miracles. It's when you're faced with the wonderment of creation because you see creation go awry. This is the beauty of the pursuit of clergy. It's why the calling is called upon many, but very few are chosen, because many few can maintain their sanity in such a miraculous experience. And when I say miraculous, I mean in the actual sense of disconcerting and in the original sense of awe, meaning to the point of losing composure. These are what demonic encounters can become in any real sense. I say in any real sense, because it doesn't need to be a manifestation of demonic energy. It can simply be a persuasion to it. If you are very accept, the reason why these seminarians were very, very prone to evil inclination, they weren't possessed, just evil inclinations, because they had a hunger for the knowledge of God and those things that are in the dominion of God. That leads one up to many, many persuasive ideas. And the demons are of the most persuasive. Eloquence is not truth, but eloquence is the easiest method to deception. So in this time and place, I mainly taught a course on Satan and exactly how to recognize it. And with reference to these books, unfortunately, it made manifest that three of the students were of inclination to abandon God and hold some more egoistic-centered salvation. Egoistic-centered in that they can save themselves instead of relying on the grace being offered upon them by the king. So of this, I managed to gain permission of the abbot, which allowed me to put penitence upon them. Instead of them doing penitence, I got to dictate what they had to do to cleanse themselves of which I gave a very, very liberal portion of one month's worth of self-mutilation, not to the point of blood, but of the point of salvation. This is what I mean by self-mutilation in the holy sense and not in the pagan sense. You must starve yourself to show remorse. The only thing I didn't do, because I was not told by God to do such, was put them in Sabbath and cloth. That would have been the days of prophets on how to reject someone of an England evil in inclination. For them to be in satin cloth and fasting and mourning, almost identical to what the people of Nineveh did when they heard the warning of Jonah. This is the true method of curing oneself from the mind possession before possession even becomes a state of a problem. So this would be my happiest story, where simply I prevented a possession from even occurring because I spotted the early signs very quickly and had a very, very agreeable habit that allowed me to dictate what their own purification would be. So that's a happy story. Thank you. 
Yeah. All right. We have reached the end of the 50-minute hour. Uh, any closing remarks by anyone? I'll let Daniel do the closing remarks. Any closing remarks? Well, I guess I, I really hope that whoever hears this takes the time to contemplate each of the silent moments. I think the silent moments are natural points of pausing the video and thinking about what's been just what's been talked about. Because you can look at my face and you can look at whatever my background is and think this is some average schmo somewhere, somewhat. And who knows, you might be right. But on the other hand, maybe my lived experience and my reference to things, if they hold up to logical scrutiny, and then if you're daring enough to actually try to search for empirical facts, meaning actually discovering these things and see if they are as I say they are, oh, may God protect you, may God guide you. But I warn thee, and I warn all of thee, to not be hubris enough to see that protection guaranteed. There are many people who thought God was on their side and got curious about demons and thought they could do a little bit of good only to find themselves in the state of a victim. And we all, earlier upon this 50 minutes, know what I categorize as a victim and what the way to save victims are and how you can lose as an exorcist if you don't save those said victims. So this is a serious business that we're talking about, and I am not urging anyone to try to be an exorcist. This is not some propaganda campaign to really recruit from my side. No, I just happen to know Corey and I know a few others. And because of that loose association, I've been able to talk to you here tonight for this maybe once, maybe reoccurring thing, depending on if I get invited again. It really depends on you guys and me having free time, of course. So that's how I felt it. Daniel, you should come visit us in Lexington. Sometime. I want to. And whenever I get a month free, I'll do the two weeks again, just like I did last time. Beautiful. All righty, Will. We'll see you next time. Until next time.